But see, we're so glad that you're here. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be there in a few minutes. We've got a few things to cover first, but go ahead and find your way to the book of Jonah. Uh, if you have not spent much time in the book of Jonah, it's okay. It's a really small book, so no shame if you need to go to the table of contents. Uh, to find the book of Jonah, do it. So be finding your way there. As I'm getting there, a couple things just to throw out there. Um, Kids, like I mentioned before, we're so glad that you're here. Um, If you're not kid, all right, uh, how do I say this nicely? we, We love kids here, and if the kids in here bothers you, good. Is that, is that okay? Like, go, go find it. I'll tell you about a couple other churches you can go to because kids are awesome. Don't let them bother you. They're great. Sound good? I'm really loving, I promise. But I have, yeah, kids are great. Kids are great. If you don't like kids, you're not great. Jeez, um, we're starting off great, aren't we? <clears throat> so let me, let me rewind that. Kids, we're grateful that you're here. The other thing, two more things. Um, today is the Reformation Day. So if you don't know about that, um, today is the day that Luther, Martin Luther, went and nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the castle and forever changed the scope of the church and what Christianity is. Um, so just a couple things that it did, which just are super important for us. But, but he fought back against the Church of Rome uh, for what they were teaching. And the main thing, there's 95 things, but the main thing that he was uh, upset about was the fact that you had to earn grace, that salvation was not by grace alone, but it was through works. And so they had all these systems set up like indulgences where you had to pay extra money to have your sins forgiven. And finally, Luther, after studying the scripture, says, none of this is true. Like, like, this is what the Bible says. You're not translating the Bible into the people's languages so they don't know enough of the Scripture to argue back with you, but, but none of this is true. So not only did he nail the 95 Theses, start the battle with the church in Rome, but he also translated the Scriptures while he was in hiding uh, so that all the common folk could read Scriptures and find out who God is uh, on their own. So, so we praise God for all that Luther did and all that started in the Reformation, a Reformation uh, over 500 years ago, 1517. So, yes, celebrate Halloween, eat some candy, but then also just take a few moments to read about the Reformation and what Luther did is of massive importance. Sound good? All right, last thing, Riley, don't leave. Um, Here's what I want to celebrate real quick, Uh, because today, or this month has been Pastor Appreciation Month, and you guys have been so generous to encourage me and my family, and I mean, y'all just love us so well, not just October, but the entire calendar year, but uh, I, I wanted to take a minute it, within this month to say that literally I am nothing without the elders and deacons that serve every single day, day in, day out. So uh, elders and deacons, come up here real quick uh, because we just want to recognize you for all the work that you do, uh, all the tireless uh, energy you put into the church. Keep walking. That clap's going to grow as you're walking. So, so these are, and I've just got a little letter for you guys, but uh, Greg is an elder. Pops, thanks for all that you do. Rob on the end. Uh, that was, it was a bad toss, my bad. Uh, Rob, thank you for all that you do. Stephen is not here, so thanks for whatever he does. Um, so those are our elders. And then Daniel, man, thanks for all the work that you do. Um, Dylan, thanks, brother. Really appreciate you. Riley, thank you. Is he asleep? Thank you. Sorry. And then Hannah, who is our newest, thank you. Thank you guys so much. So y'all give them a round of applause for all they do to help serve the church and love the church. 
Thank you. You guys can grab a seat, yeah. All right, so the book of Jonah, who's pumped about the book of Jonah? I am, and, and even just spending time in it, uh, it's, it's a, I was going to grab that, but thanks, man. See, servant, just taking care of Stephen like that. So the, the book of Jonah is fantastic for a, a bunch of different reasons, but, but here's what I need, uh, because I, I, I read this, heard this this week, and it just really resonated. The book of Jonah is the most known yet unknown story in the Old Testament. And, and what that means is we, we've all had this idea of Jonah. We've all heard it, the big fish, the big whale. Uh, is that actually true? Is it allegory? Uh, if you grew up like when, in the church era that I grew up at, you saw Jonah and the whale on the felt board. And the whole time you're wondering, like, how does the whale stick on that thing without falling off? You're not even paying attention to the story. So, so we all have this misconception and idea of what the book of Jonah is. So f- over the next four weeks, because we're going to do this for four weeks, and then we're going to go to an Advent series for four weeks, uh, and then we're going to go into Exodus starting next year. Uh, we're going to spend probably, I don't know, a long time in Exodus, 40, 50 weeks. Uh, so over the next four weeks, I want you to try to forget all the misconceptions that you've walked in here with the book of Jonah. Um, and, and really, us together collectively relearn, maybe properly for the first time, what the book of Jonah is and what it's about. So, so we're just going to study the first chapter, most of the first chapter today. And, and like any story, any, any character arc, uh, what happens at first is you meet the characters, right? So you think of your favorite movie or your favorite book, right out the gate, you're going to meet the characters, but then there's also going to be a climax, right? There's going to be some kind of tension that's building up to this point of climax. So in chapter one, We're just going to simply learn today who the character is. Spoiler alert, it's Jonah, right? And then we're going to start getting into the tension of what's really happening, what the Lord is trying to teach, not only Jonah, but for all of us today. And here's the conflict. You ready? I'm going to go ahead and throw this out. We're going to look at this over the next four weeks. The the conflict or the tension, the lesson that God is trying to teach Jonah is nothing more than obedience. It's obedience, He's trying to model, shape, teach for Jonah how to be obedient. And and listen, I'll be honest with you. Obedience is, in my opinion, the hardest part of Christianity, right? And really, when you kind of tease this out, obedience is the hardest part of everything. To follow through, to do what you know is right, is literally the hardest part of anything. Getting married is super simple, right? But staying married might be a little bit more difficult. Or, or maybe a lighter one. Going, joining a gym is super simple. But staying obedient, staying diligent to the regiment of being active in a gym might be a little harder. Or for the college students, it wasn't probably that difficult for you to get into the university. But to stay disciplined, to obedient to what the professors ask to the graduate is a little bit more difficult. And we can do that same thing here. To begin the process of following Jesus For some of us, yeah, it was incredibly difficult, but for the most of us, it wasn't. But the process of being obedient, when God calls us into the deeper waters, into the harder places, that's where Christianity gets really difficult, and that's what we're going to study this morning. We're going to start to see this tension of obedience. So we'll start off, like I said, just 1 1 through 16, but real quick, just background on who Jonah is, right? So Jonah just kind of begins, but we really don't know the history, the background of Jonah, and I'll release a little bit more of these details as we go on, but, but we see Jonah primarily in 2 Kings 14, and it's through Jonah's preaching that Jeroboam II fixed Israel's border that had been weakened during the early conflicts of Assyria. So 
Israel was in conflict with Assyria. You need to remember Assyria because it's going to come into play here in a second. That was the enemy of Israel. And so through the prophetic message of Jonah to the king, that's how all the situation was fixed. Now, the prophets within the Old Testament are just vocal pieces of God and God's word. So they speak on behalf of God. Whatever they hear God say, they speak it. And a lot of times they're speaking on sin, they're speaking on conflict, and they can get murdered because of it. Like they can just get axed because you're not talking to regular people. These prophets are going into talking to kings, talking to rulers. And so we see this with Jonah. The first understanding of Jonah was that he was a bold man that went straight to the king and told him how to fix this situation, how to protect Israel from the Assyrians. So we know that he was a prophet, we know that he was bold, and we know that he was somewhat good at his job because he helped fix and rebuild the nation of Israel. So when we pick it up at the beginning of Jonah 1, we know that he's had some success, and he knows how to listen and obey to what the Lord has called him to do. So here's what we're going to see as we start to study the idea of Jonah, and here's what we have to get in our minds in this concept of obedience. Because what Jonah is going to present for us, and what most of us probably already believe, but we don't really understand that we believe, is that the opposite of obedience is disobedience, right? So if you're not being obedient to your parents, if you're not being obedient at your job or your workplace, if you're not being obedient, then you're being disobedient. But here's where we start to get soft on disobedience, right? Because we naturally think that if we're being disobedient, it's a passive. I didn't really mean to be disobedient. I didn't mean to disobey. But what we're going to see here is that every time we choose not to obey, we're choosing to disobey. It's not a passive, but it's an active work, that we're actively choosing to disobey. And so we'll see this time in this story, in chapter 1, Jonah three times actively chooses disobedience over obedience. And so it's helpful for us as we study Jonah and as we just become sanctified, become more like Christ ourselves, to stop and understand and see what it is that we're choosing, because we're all choosing something over obedience. Here's what God has for us. I don't want that. I want this. It's not a passive, like, oh, I just fell into this. It's an active choice where we deliberately disobey because we would rather have this. And we're going to see this on display three times within the book of Jonah. So let me read this quote from C.S. Lewis, and then we'll jump straight into verse 1. To have faith in Christ means, of course, to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you're a trusted person if you take not his advice. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him, but trying in a new way, a less worried way, not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has all begun to save you already, not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because of a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside of us. And so Lewis is opening us up as we get into this text, lest we slip into a type of legalism, that obedience does not earn salvation, that we obey because of how good and how generous and how merciful God has been to us first and foremost. And hopefully this week, but then also throughout the next three weeks, we'll see that. So let's pick it up in verse 1, Jonah 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. 
But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish to the present, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going into Tarshish. He, so he paid his fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So straight out the gate, you see the tension. We see Jonah who knows what he's doing. He knows how to listen to the Lord. He knows what to speak. God clearly speaks to him, says, Arise, go to Nineveh to the great city and call out against it. And Jonah simply says, No. Like, absolutely not. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to run over here. And it's helpful for us to understand why. Why is that the case? And the simple reason is the presence of the Lord called Jonah to enemy territory. So these are the Assyrians. Where he's calling him to is the capital city of the Assyrians. You know, the one that Jonah got his fame for, for telling the king of Israel how to rebuild the wall to protect them from Assyria. So not only is he going into enemy territory, but the first prophetic message that we have from Jonah within scriptures is against the people that he's now go called to speak to. So not only are these his enemies, but not only are he, is he somewhat afraid of them, but he literally probably hates these people. I mean, like you take this into today, like this would be a similar context of 2002, 2003, right? Oh my gosh, should we do this real quick? Raise your hand if you were not born in 2002, 2003. All right, not as bad as I thought. All right, so 2001 comes, the World Trade Centers come down. This would be similar to God coming to us and saying, you need to go into enemy territory and preach to the Afghan armies that just murdered Americans. So you can start to see the tension of like, nah, God, I'm good. Like, we, we, I would... If I go over there, I'd like to do other things to them other than to preach them the good news. So I'll go do that if you want me to, but to go preach to them what salvation is, I'm, I'm good. So this is the tension that Jonah's walking into. You read some of these overly simplistic stories about Jonah, and it's like, well, Jonah said no. Well, yeah, but he said no, but he also had some pretty good reasons to say no, that these were the enemies, these were the Gentiles, that his life would be on the line if he went over there. So he says no. And what he naturally does is goes as far in the opposite direction as he can. So literally, where he went to, from Nineveh to Tarshish, is 180 degrees going the opposite direction. I don't want to be anywhere near that. He runs. He flees. Now, here's this massive problem that we have to have with this text. Because a lot of us, when, when we feel like God's calling us to do something, or he's, he's leading us to do something, and we're not really sure what we're supposed to do, and then seemingly God opens this door for us to go the opposite direction. We go, oh, well, God provided a way out. So maybe I misunderstood God. Maybe I wasn't supposed to do what God asked me to do because God has now provided a way out. So you take Jonah, he goes down to Joppa, he goes down to where the boats are, and there's conveniently a boat that's taking him opposite of what God called him to do. I don't know if you're like me, but I am the master of rationalizing and justifying a way. So I could see myself walking down to Joppa going, well, I know God's called me there, but there's a boat right in front of me that's taking me the opposite direction. This must be the will of God to take me in the opposite direction. But here's what Sinclair Ferguson says that. The ship lying in the Joppa harbor was not meant to be a means of escape for God's clearly revealed word but the most terrible instrument in the hands of God to bring his servant back to his senses. So this was an opportunity for God to teach Jonah what obedience actually looks like. 
So we see this first massive act of disobedience from Jonah. Go to Nineveh. Nope, I'm going this way. But remember, disobedience is not passive. This was an active will for Jonah to actively choose. God said this, I'm going to do this. And what was this that he was choosing? And so what I want to do over these three strikes is try to contextualize a little bit to us to see maybe we can resonate with some of these acts of disobedience. Because the first thing that we see was Jonah was more concerned with his reputation among the fellow Israelites than the people that he was called to minister to. That Jonah was more concerned with his reputation than obedience to God and God alone. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I, I can be very guilty of that. God's leading me to do this. God wants me to do this. And the first thing that pops in my mind is what would people say? Now, I'll just go ahead and just throw this out there. If that's your first question to what God is calling you to do, you're listening to the wrong voice. Because no one lies to you like you do. You can justify it, you can rationalize. So if the first thought that comes into your mind is what will people say, then we are more concerned with the world and the friends around us than what God has asked us to do and be obedient to him. And I could give you story after story after story of me personally doing this. Although I think I've shared this before all the way back to middle school. I was like on fire for Jesus. This is going to be the year I drew a fish, uh, you know, like the Jesus fish. And I put John 3.16 and I was going to put it up in my locker and people were going to walk by and I was going to tell them about Jesus because that's what I'm going to do. Came back from beach camp, I was ready to go. Get to school, and I go, well, maybe if I fold John 3.16 up underneath, they'll still see the fish. They'll still ask me questions. I'll still be Billy Graham of Northwestern Middle School. It'll be great, right? So I get there, put the fish up on the locker. My plans come into fruition. This girl walks by and goes, oh, my gosh, what's that fish about? Here's my chance. Here's my chance to be Billy Graham, to lead people to Jesus. And I go, I don't know. That dumb janitor must have left it up here from last year <laughs> and shut the locker and left. Here we go. True confession. You can judge me all you want to for that. Because I was more concerned with my reputation in front of this middle school girl than the obedience that God had called me to do. And that wasn't just middle school. It still happens for me all the time. Hey, what do you do for a living? Uh, I don't know that I want to tell you because then that's going to be really awkward. So I'm a consultant. Just kidding. I've never actually done that. But there's this tension in me. Every time someone asks what I do for a living, of do I really want to share because what comes into my mind? What will people say when I tell them I'm a pastor? I proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. That's, that's my burden to bear when I ask and am more concerned about what people think about me, my reputation. But we must learn from this first strike for Jonah what that means for us today. So Matthew 10, 32 through 33 puts it this way. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge them before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. There's dire consequences when we're more concerned about our reputation than what God has asked us and required for us to do. There's dire consequences of that. So the application of Jonah's strike one is really simple. Where in our life are we more concerned about our reputation than the obedience to God? Where are we more concerned about our reputation than our obedience to God? Like Jonah, the most obvious place I see it in is evangelism. Like I said before, there's still that swell in me. What do you do for a living? Nah, I don't want to tell you. But we all deal with that. We're more concerned about what people are going to say about us when we're proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. When it just comes up in conversation, 
we're so concerned about that that we shy away from evangelism. Or maybe it's in our own lifestyle that we want to blend in with everyone else instead of standing out and being salt and light like Christ has called us to do. So, strike one for Jonah. Reputation over obedience. Let's look at strike two. Look with me at verse four. So Jonah's on the ship now, and here's what happens. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each of them cried out to God, to his God, excuse me. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship to the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and lay down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Code word here, they're terrified. Verse 7, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know whose account this evil has come upon us. So they casted lots and it fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us, on whose account has this evil come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? Where is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, God of heaven, who has made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is it that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So Jonah was more concerned about his reputation than the commands of God to go preach the gospel to those in Nineveh. So he's fleeing from the presence of God. Now here's just this massive question, and even the psalmist recognizes it and wrestles with this within the book of Psalms. Where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from you? And if I go up to the mountains, you're there. If I go down to the dirt, you're there. Where, where can I run from the presence of God? And this is what Jonah is trying to do. He's trying to run away from the presence of God. So a storm comes, and it gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse. So much so that these guys that are taking this boat, they're shipping this cargo across the sea. This is not their property. They're doing this for a living. They're so concerned that they're throwing all of this stuff overboard, saying, I'm more concerned about paying for this stuff later because I think we're about to die right now. I mean, they're losing their mind trying to get out of this storm. And where's Jonah? Sleeping. I mean, literally sleeping, doing nothing to help the situation. Nothing whatsoever. So through casting lots, which we can go into that maybe some other time, uh, the Lord leads them to Jonah. This is why they're happening. And these questions that they ask are super important for this. So look back with me at the end of, uh, where's it at? Verse 8. Because they ask four important questions. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? So we can recognize this, that these cargo shipmen, they're not, these sailors, these mariners, they're not from the nation of Israel. They're not from the people of God. They're crying out through their own gods, but they don't even recognize where Jonah is from. So, so they're not from the nation of Israel. So they're trying to figure this out. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? Where is your country? And what people are you? And here's how he responds. Again, this is an opportunity for obedience for Jonah. But listen to how he responds. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Do you notice what question he didn't answer? What is your occupation? 
So he says, yes, I'm in Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heavens. But he skips out on what is your occupation. He skips out on the fact that I'm a prophet. I proclaim the goodness of God and his love for humanity. He leaves that part out. So here's the prophet that his living, that what he does is speak on behalf of God. And here's a group of sailors that are fearful for their life, that are hungry for God's truth, help us, save us. So the one that can speak the goodness of God to these people doesn't. Strike two for Jonah. He was more concerned about his reputation than his obedience. And now we see that he's not even following through in the obedience of being a prophet. I am a prophet, Jonah could have said, and I can tell you how great God is and why you need him and how to make that happen. Instead, can you leave me alone so I can go back to sleep? That was the attitude that we have for Jonah. So Jonah, in this moment of active disobedience, chose indifference over obedience. He chose indifference. Before it was reputation, now he's choosing indifference, which is rooted in selfishness, and self-righteousness. So, as I'm preparing my sermon week in, week out, there's often time the Lord just creates this opportunity for me to learn what it is that I'm teaching so that I can come to you guys very humble and very sad for what the sins I've committed this week with the assumption that you won't judge me for what I'm about to tell you. Can we all agree to that covenant together? So what I'm about to share with you, you can never make fun of me for. Deal? Tuesday, I, don't, I didn't see enough deals. Deal? All right, I'm being vulnerable here. And y'all are about to judge me hardcore for what I'm about to say. Tuesday, my family went to Burt's Pumpkin Farm, right? Because that's what you do around North Georgia. We were going to a family group. We were carving pumpkins. God forbid we go to Walmart to get pumpkins. We got to go to Burt's because that's where they're from. So we hop in the car. We drive to Burt's. And we go to Burt's every year. That's a family tradition for us. And every year we ride the hayride. And every year the hayride's the exact same. Have y'all rode the hayride at Burt's? All right, does it ever change? No, they should just call it God, the Alpha and the Omega, the unchanging one. That is what happens. But this time we're so late that they've already taken all the pumpkins, they're replowing the field, so we just get to look at dirt. No pretty sunflowers, no nothing, just dirt. So I go pay for, can you tell I was already a little salty about going to Burt's? Get to Burt's, I go pay $50 to ride this hayride that never changes so that my family can be happy. And there's 20 people at Burt's, right? I mean, all the pumpkins are done. It's like us and 20 people. Well, literally, I kid you not, all 20 people that are at Burt's hop onto this hayride with us. So now there's zero shoppers around Burt's. It's us on the hayride with everyone else. Now, I'm in a bad mood already, and then I just paid 50 bucks to pay for a hayride that never changes. And literally, this is the part you can judge me all you want to. As I'm sitting in this hayride, sulking in the corner with some lady that's way too close to me that I'm pretty sure kept... I mean, uh, just farting on me the entire time. It was not my kids, and it was awful. As I'm looking around, a pooting, excuse me, kiddos, a pooting. Here's my thought. You ready? I'm better than all of you. I'm not joking. Like, that was the thought that came into my mind, was I'm better than every single one of you in this hayride. I'm mad. I don't want to be here. Stop eating beans, lady. I don't know why we're here, but I'm better than all of you. And literally, I mean, just as I'm sitting there sulking, trying to put on a good time for the kids, I just heard the voice of the Lord go, hey there, Jonah. Hey there, Mr. Indifference. Hey, hey, pastor, 
you're on a hayride with a bunch of people, do you know where their spiritual life is? Why don't you talk to the people next to you, Jonah? What you are gonna preach on Sunday is what you're living, Jonah. What makes you better than anybody on this hayride? So as I'm learning this and, and thinking through this, there's this person that comes wrong ways. I don't know how they ended up there, but the wrong way on the hayride. So now the hayride has to stop and we're waiting for 10 minutes because somehow they missed the big entrance to Burt's farm and I don't know what happened. But this person in the car was, uh, we'll say was dressed up for Halloween before Halloween was ready. Is that a nice way to say it? So I'm looking at this person and I'm already having this like conviction of sin and just kept thinking, man, maybe I should just pray for that person because they are literally lost in the woods. They're not from around here. If that person comes, if I see them, I'm going to go try to talk to them because I don't want to be Jonah. I don't want to have this indifference in me because indifference runs way deeper than we think. Because for a lot of us, that's, and you can judge me if you want to, but, but I'm pretty sure we all kind of wrestle with that at some point. The indifference runs rampant in all of us. And we could see this, Luke 10, 33. Just consider the parable of the Good Samaritan. You have the priest and the Levite that go to the other side of the road to not help the person that was beaten in the ditch. Why? Because we're better than you. We don't actually have to help you. But Luke 10, 33, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and he saw him, and he had compassion. So what is the antidote? What is the opposite of indifference? It's compassion. The opposite of indifference is compassion. If Jonah would have had an inclining of compassion for these sailors, instead of thinking solely about himself, how different would this story have turned out? And the root of compassion is the gospel. The one thing that binds all of us together is that we're all born in sin. I'm better than no one because we're all alike. We're all born dead to our sins, dead to our trespasses, and for whatever reason, God saw fit to save us. That's what binds us together. So it doesn't matter education, it doesn't matter wealth, it doesn't matter what your upbringing was or wasn't. We are all the same. We should have compassion on those that are far from God. If the priests and Levites would have understood the gospel, that at our worst, God still loves us and sends Christ to die for us, and they would have had compassion. If Jonah would understand the gospel, he would have had compassion on the sailors and spoken the gospel to him. So, Jonah chooses his reputation over obedience. Strike two, he chooses indifference over obedience. Are there people around us today crying for help? And we have the hope that they need, which is King Jesus. But we're choosing indifference. We're choosing distance. We're walking on the opposite side of the road instead of drawing near to them. So, reputation over obedience, indifference over obedience. Let's look at the last one, verse 11. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea might quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptatious. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea that they may quiet down. For I know it is because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, I love this, the men said no. At first they said, no, we're, we're not going to do this. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempest, 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 tempest against them. 
Do you like that? That's for free. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for the man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they pick up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So of this entire story, and next week we'll get into whale, fish, what actually took place. But this part right here is the craziest part to me. I, I, I understand that Jonah chose his reputation over obedience. Like that one sits well with me. Not really, but I, I, I can understand. And I understand indifference over obedience. Again, that one makes sense to me. But this one is just bizarre. The sailors now know, right, that Jonah is the problem. That Jonah is what's wrong with the situation. So here's his solution. Just throw me in the sea. Just, just get rid of me. Get, if you throw me overboard, everything will stop and everything will be fine. Just, just throw me overboard. Okay, so you got to go all the way back. How did this story start? Jonah being disobedient, instead of going to Nineveh, he was trying to flee from the presence of God. And so we get to this point where the seas are going crazy. What should we do? And here's Jonah's thought. Just, just kill me. Now, if you're a thinker, what could Jonah's other option been? Hey, can you turn this ship around? God, I repent. Take me to Nineveh. I'll do whatever you ask of me. Spare me. Spare these men. Take me back. Take me. I'm sorry for running. I'm sorry for fleeing. But take me back. And instead, Jonah was a prideful man and said, I would rather be killed I would rather die than do what God has asked me to do. I would rather be disobedient to the point of death. But that's just hard to see. It's hard to understand that we can be so hard-hearted and disobedient to the Father that we would rather, our pride would just be so blind, we'd be so blinded by our pride. Here's what C.H. Spurgeon says about this. You are God's creature, and yet you have rendered him no obedience. You would not keep a horse or a dog that did you the same service or follow you at whistle. So he's saying, listen, we are supposed to be God's children, but we ourselves would not keep a dog that was disobedient. Why in the world would God keep us if we're being this disobedient, if we're letting our pride blind us over and over and over again? It only starts by the goodness of who God is. Now, through this, I was trying to think through an illustration, like what is it in a way that I could illustrate this point of pride over disobedience? And I just got to be honest with you, I have zero pride in me at all. So an illustration for this point was really difficult for me to come up with. There we go, just making sure you're with me. Um, I'm, I, I am incredible. Am I prideful? Oh, thanks, boo. I'll remember that. Yes, I'm super prideful. And I've been in these situations where I would rather not admit fault, right? I would rather not admit that I'm wrong instead of being obedient to what God has called us to do. Now, the temptation is to say, well, the situation is massive. I would never let the pride get the best of me. I would have told these guys, these mariners, these sailors to turn around. I get it, but the evil of pride and disobedience is that it starts small and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. 
It's one compromise that just keeps growing and growing and growing. So the disobedience, the pride that's in Jonah that allowed him to say, just kill me instead of me going to do what God has called us to do, was not a one-time thing. This had been growing over and over and over again for a long period of time until Jonah was just so numb to the pride that is in him, he had no clue. I'll put it this way. So this year's just kind of been a weight loss journey for me, trying to get healthy because trying to chase four kids is impossible when you're this fat. So I've been trying to lose weight, and the step one, I met with a nutritionist. She said step one was just do this. Don't even worry about what it is that you eat. Just eat for two weeks, and I want you to track every single thing that you eat. Right? So don't change anything. Don't, don't get rid of anything. Just track what you eat for two weeks, and then bring it back to me, and we can talk about it. Now, I could see, I mean, first off, I was just appalled. It was right there on the page. No wonder I'm fat. I eat three sleeves of Oreos every night. That makes a bunch of sense to me. You eat Oreos, you drink milk for a nighttime snack. But here's, here's how it started, right? It didn't start out with me, I don't really eat three sleeves, but it didn't start out with me eating an entire sleeve of Oreos before I went to bed. It started off with me having one Oreo and a glass of milk. And then that one Oreo didn't satisfy, so it turned into two, and then turned into three. And then I started making jokes about it, like, I'm not eating a bunch of Oreos, this is just communion, right? The milk and the Oreo is just communion. Jesus loves this. No, Jesus doesn't love gluttony. So I just kept going and going and going, and then it ended up to a point where I didn't want to be, and I didn't recognize myself. And this is how pride creeps in on us. It's one decision that learns into another, that leads into another, that leads into another. And before we know it, our pride and disobedience has grown so much that it's even hard to see it. It takes something like us writing down, studying our soul to understand how much pride is built up within us. Because pride is nothing more than self-worship. And we live in a culture where self-worship is just normative. Like, like that is what culture accepts. If you don't worship yourself, if you don't make most of yourself, if you don't post all these self-righteous things on Instagram, and then, then who are you? So we live in a culture where that's just normative. But here's just three quick passages. Proverbs 8, 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil have perverted speech I hate. Psalm 10.4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All of his thoughts are, there is no God. And then Proverbs 16, which this is the one most of us probably know. Pride goes before destruction, or pride goes before the fall, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be lowly in spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. So pride and obedience cannot be in the same sentence. We cannot be proud and still obey the God of gods, the Lord of lords. Those two things cannot coexist together. But for Jonah, he chose pride over obedience. So let us learn from that, that pride can literally destroy us, can have us hurled into the sea instead of being obedient for what God has actually called us to do. But let us also remember that it's creeping in right now. Let us examine our hearts. God, where has pride helped us? Where has pride hurt us? Not helped us. Where has it hurt us? Where has it settled in? And here's one of the best parts about community. You join a family group. You get into community. You trust some brothers and sisters in that community. Just ask them. They'll tell you. They'll tell you real quick. 
They'll point out pride in you that you didn't know existed. And guess what's going to happen? You're going to want to argue. You're going to want to fight. You know what that is? Pride. So we see Jonah, as we start to set the story, chose his reputation over obedience. He chose indifference over obedience. And lastly, he chose his pride over obedience. So as we start to tease this out, we start to see that, that what God wants from us is obedience. What a loving father wants from us is obedience. Again, Spurgeon says, no man is really saved unless he in his heart is obedient to Christ. What it means for us to follow Christ is obedience. But here's where we start to fall off the page, right? If we don't understand who God is and the love for us and the sacrifice he's made for us, then obedience to a God that we don't really know or we don't really love seems cruel and legalistic. But when we truly understand the character and the nature and the grace and the mercy of God, then we trust him and we want to be obedient. It's the same things that we tell our kids all the time. When they're struggling with doing what mom and dad have asked, here's what we always say, hey, do I love you? Do you think that I care for you? Do you think that I know what's best for you? Then trust me when I say do this. Because you might not see it at the time, but your dad's not a cruel guy. I'm not trying to be a bully and make you do something that's not good for you. Trust me. Let me lead you. Do what I say. But over time, that disobedience is going to be punished. And this is where we pick up in the story of Jonah. Now, we can see this clearly on display as we start to wrap up our time together and I preach my shortest sermon I've ever had. You're welcome, kiddos. Here's what we have to see. Flip with me to Philippians 2. Because when we start to consider what obedience looks like and why obedience matters, then we have one person that we can look to who is the perfect example of obedience, who did what did not make sense to him in the moment, but we get to see the fruit of that. We are the fruit of that. And that's Philippians 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 5. Philippians 2, verse 5. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And this is where it gets awesome. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming, what's that word? Obedient, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So who do we look to for guidance on what obedience looks like for us? We look none other than to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now you think about this, and I could preach a whole other sermon here, but I won't. You think about this. Was Jesus concerned with his reputation over obedience? Well, of course he could have been, because he was innocent. He was fully innocent, so Jesus could have said, I'm going to be more concerned about my reputation than my obedience to God. Could Jesus have been more concerned about the indifference? Yeah. Do you, would you really want to die for people that are telling you you're awful, that are stealing things off of your body, literally that are putting a crown of thorns on your head? The same ones that said they loved you 12 hours ago are now deserting you. Wouldn't that create some indifference in your soul? Yes, but he chose obedience over indifference. 
And wouldn't there be some pride in you that when Jesus came, he came not for this, the well, but for the sick, wouldn't there be some pride of like, I'm, I'm God. Why do I have to lay down my life for you? You've done nothing for me. Over the last three years that I've spent with the disciples, you've disappointed me over and over and over again. You don't deserve any of this. Wouldn't there be some pride within Jesus to say, no, forget this. Y'all didn't hold up your end of the bargain. I'm better than you. I'm leaving. But Jesus chose obedience over pride. So when we're wrestling with this idea of obedience, who do we look to? None other than the author and perfecter of our faith. Who the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. This is not something that we need to white-knuckle effort. I need to be more obedient, and I can do this all by myself. Friends, if we get that from the book of Jonah, I have led you astray. The point of the gospel, the point of obedience, is that we can't. That we can't do this on our own. It's only through the power and resurrection of Christ can we ever be obedient because we're nothing but sinful people that will choose sin every single time. But if we submit to King Jesus, if we're obedient to him, then he will lead us and he will call us into that. So in a moment, we're going to stop and pray. We've got communion set up in the back for those that are baptized believers. You can take, you can get the body that represents, the bread that represents his body. You can get the juice that represents his blood. And you can take communion. You can remember that he has set the tone for what obedience looks like for us. But here's my question for us as we're taking this time of communion. What is it that you've been walking in disobedience for? What is it specifically that you've been walking in a season of disobedience. And I could list example over example after example, but I'm just going to trust that the Spirit's going to do that in us. That even now as I'm speaking, you know where you've been walking away from the Lord. You know where you're choosing to get on that boat and go 180 degrees from where you're supposed to go. You know what that looks like. And for some of us, it's salvation. For some of us, God has been calling us for a long time to give our lives to Him. And we cannot get on a boat fast enough and go the opposite direction. So what is it that we've been disobedient in that we're more concerned about our reputation, the indifference, or our pride that we're not being obedient to what's best for us, which is what God asked of us? So I'm going to pray for us. Communion's going to be open. I'll be in the back if anyone wants to pray. And then we can leave this place committed to following after God. Because God modeled that for us, that he loves us to the point of obedience through death on the cross. And he loves us and he knows what's best for us. And it's a joy to walk in obedience to him. So let's pray. And Father, we're so grateful for you and your love for us. God, let us not look down our noses at Jonah and the three strikes that he had of indifference, pride, and reputation. So Father, this morning, where are we being disobedient? As I said, maybe some you've been calling for a long time to be a son or daughter of you, and they've been walking away from you. For some, it might be within marriage, it might be within school, it might be a career path that they know is the right path, but they keep pushing it down. Spirit, I trust that whatever's happening in this room right now, it's from you. Father, would you convict, would you lead us back to you? Because your ways are the best. And more often than not, we can never see it or understand it. 
in the moment. But Father, we trust you. We trust you that you love us, that you care for us more than we could ever imagine. And what you're asking of us is what's best for our sake and for your glory. So God, would this morning be a morning of confession and obedience? Would we lay down our reputation, our indifference, and our pride and follow after you? Jesus, we love you. Thank you for loving us. It's your name we pray. Amen.